This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Phil Apokojima and Frank Mugisha are two powerhouse LGBTQ human rights activists. Phil, who has been a guest on the show before, is the co-founder and executive director of UK Black Pride, Europe's largest pride celebration for LGBTQ people of color. She's also the executive director of Kaleidoscope Trust, the UK-based charity working to uphold the human rights of LGBTQ people across the Commonwealth. Phil became widely known as Lady Phil after she turned down an MBE from the Queen to protest the UK's colonial impact and legacies. Frank Mugisha is a Ugandan LGBTQ activist. He's the founder of Icebreakers Uganda, a support network for LGBTQ Ugandans, and is the executive director of Sexual Minorities Uganda, or SMUG, an alliance of 18 organizations supporting and advocating for the Ugandan LGBTQ community. Frank is a recipient of the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Award, the RAFTO Prize, the International Human Rights Film Award at Cinema for Peace, and has been recognized by the United Nations as a human rights defender. In 2014, he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. We came together for Black Tech Fest 2021 to discuss the many and varied ways social media platforms are used to connect those fighting for their human rights, the impact of COVID-19 on their respective organizations and work in community, and what they have to say to tech leaders at platforms like Facebook who continue to overlook important insights from marginalized communities about how tech can be utilized for more good. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being Black with Philip Okajima and Frank Mugisha at Black Tech Fest 2021. so much and what a pleasure it is to be in conversation with Frank and also with you Josh you know because you didn't actually introduce yourself so let me just start by saying firstly congratulations on your award for Busy Being Black podcast which centers the voices of black and POC LGBTQI plus people so how's my heart I think that's always a question that you never always know how to answer, but at the moment it's beating and I'm excited about this conversation and excited to know more about the things Frank is doing. Um, and yeah, I just know it's Friday as well. And Frank, how is your heart? Well, thank you so much, Josh and Lady Phil. What an honor to be in conversation with you uh, this uh, sunny afternoon in Kampala. Uh, well, I'm, I feel excited. My heart is eager and happy, and I feel inspired. I'm very happy to have this conversation. 
we're having this conversation the week of what is being called the outage, which saw Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram go offline for, quote, by far the longest outage for a major platform in recent memory. Frank, can you provide some insight into how the work you do relies upon platforms like Facebook and its brands, and what impact the outage had on your work and communities? Oh, thank you so much, Josh, for that question. Um, as you will know, uh, that I come from a country that is extremely very conservative. So you can imagine that all mainstream media is extremely conservative. So reporting and mentioning of anything um, on LGBTQ rights or queer rights is definitely not going to happen in any media. And leaving that aside, our own safety and security, when you have any problem, the first place you're going to know about it is from social media and majorly from Facebook, because Facebook is easy to use, but it's also cheap to use. You know, you can download some data bundles and then you have free Facebook. So activists on the ground, many of them rely on reporting about violations of, of, of LGBT persons on social media and Facebook. So definitely the outrage caused some panic, kind of panic. In fact, my first instinct, I thought we are locked out by our government. I was like, what have we done this time to be locked out? And then I found out it was a worldwide problem. That's really interesting insight about where your mind went, like when you saw you couldn't access these platforms and perhaps speaks to the political uh, environment that you're operating within. Yes, because, uh, you know, uh, a few months ago we had general elections and we were in a total blackout of all social media, nothing. The whole country was cut off. So, and you can, like I said, we rely on social media for our security. If I got arrested or picked up and abducted, the first thing I, I make sure my phone is active. The first thing I do is post on my social media and then people get to know. And then, of course, the hashtag start and everything. And, you know, I live by that. That is my that is my way out of trouble. I live by that if anything happens to me. So when we were locked out, it was fear. I mean, I was at some point worried of leaving where I was because, you know, you worry that if something happens, then the world will never know about it. So it was that kind of fear. And when the outrage happened, my first instinct was, what have we done now? Why have we been locked out? Of, of social media. Is it only Uganda? In fact, I tweeted about it. And then people were like, no, no, it's a general, a general problem. And so that information sharing in that moment was also very important. Um, Phil, here in the UK, we've spoken about this. Um, we saw some pretty Eurocentric responses to the outage. One post on LinkedIn suggested that if Instagram closed at 6 p.m. every day, like a shop, we'd all have to connect with family and friends and actually leave the house. And aside from the fact that it wasn't clear about which time zone this closure would take place, what are these narratives missing or misunderstanding about the role of digital platforms in marginalized communities? So not only in Uganda, as, as Frank has made clear, but in, in marginalized communities here in the UK. Yes, so I guess, Josh, that comment alone comes from a very privileged place. Um, the lack of understanding of how we access each other. And this is not new for marginalized communities. Black men, black women, black queer people, black disabled people, 
we have been organizing much of our activities online. So if you're talking about, you know, if we shut at 6 p.m., you know, how are we communicating with each other when we already know that it's not safe for us sometimes to be on the streets connecting or maybe some of us don't even have family. So I guess that, you know, the ways in which that plays out, what is missing is about understanding how marginalised communities have communicated with each other, have mobilised and organised and galvanised, you know, their their work around LGBTQ rights um, for ourselves and for others. So, yeah, I'm, I was a bit taken back when I heard that and I thought, clearly this person is not needing to fight for freedoms, justice, equity and equality, hence why it's from a very um, Eurocentric place. But I wanted to really just acknowledge something that Frank had said, and this was about where he went to. The work that we do, whether it's in the UK in service of our communities, um, regionally, nationally, internationally or globally, that fear is a very well-founded fear. I actually check on my social media to see Frank's daily updates or to see our TSEN, which is the Commonwealth Equality Network, updates to know that they are okay. And that is our method of being able to stay in touch with each other. Yeah, I think that's a it's a really important point. I I want to bring you back to the UK just briefly because you were a member of Black Lesbians in the UK. Talk a little bit about how Black Lesbians in the UK, twenty years ago, uh, were using digital means for connecting. Yes, so Block Black Lesbians in the UK, we started off as an online portal and having and holding spaces and conversations, whether we were talking about sexual health and reproductive rights or whether somebody was a femme, a stud, a stem, whatever it may have been, all of those conversations were online and we, we understood how to find each other and our shared commonalities that we, we had with one another. Um, it, was, it was an exciting way of connecting for those who were fearful of being out in the public, for those who um, didn't have the money, the funds, the resource to connect, get on a bus or wherever it may be that we needed to get to. But it was more importantly, a way of talking with each other and knowing that there are so many of us out there as black lesbians all over the UK. Um, and that's how we ended up really organising our very first UK Black Pride through black lesbians connecting, communicating, um, showing love to one another, debating, having dialogue and also consulting one another on what and how the world treats us. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to, to work within the spaces we all work, uh, but based in the UK and to see how the dominant narrative of how social media is employed, deployed across communities. Here in the UK, it's very much vanity, right? The, the, the criticisms that people were lobbying at each other um, after the outage was like, oh, you couldn't take some time off from Instagram for, for six hours. You know, it was, 
And it was really irritating, right? <laughs> because uh, these broad sweeping generalizations about how people use social media actually say a lot more about the person making the criticism um, than those who are using social media. It may also be that, you know, the social media is one of the tools in where that's the only way we get to have conversations with people because we're isolated or we live in rural areas or areas that, you know, we don't get to see and feel and hear many people like us. Because being marginalized is not about just how society treats us. Being marginalized could be marginalized in areas that actually you may be or appear to be the only one. So taking to social media, feels like there is a whole community of people that are there for you, that hear you and also understand you. I love that. Um, Frank, I'm curious about how your relationship to digital and virtual technologies changed or didn't during the COVID-19 crisis. Was it a huge adjustment? Were your communities already used to operating in digital only ways? How, how has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted your your use of, of digital and virtual technologies, if at all? I mean, uh, our, our communities in Uganda is, is very marginalized. And as you can imagine, that means uh, less income. So that also means less um, awareness and understanding of technology. So with uh, the COVID-19, everything being done remotely, it became complicated to do most of our work. And for us in Uganda, I think as many of the countries at some point had a total lockdown. We had a lockdown where you're not allowed to, to like move or drive or do anything. Anything was either online or you had to walk there. So for many of our, 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 for many of our members, we had to go back to the old days of walking and doing and, and and doing some some of the work by word of mouth, whereby this one informs this one and the person informs this one, and the nearest to you gives you the message. So that is sort of like technology, but then we are doing it in person because of the limitations we had with um, with uh, with technology and, and also the network. Sometimes it's not really good. I think we are lucky that I'm having very good network now because I'm in the city, but we have so many members in the rural areas who are, have struggled adjusting or having proper internet connectivity. And then also we have members who have uh, trouble adjusting because now we have to conduct some of, of the trainings, even the most important trainings, like security trainings online by Zoom or any other technology. I mean, I was struggling with this technology, this particular one myself. <laughs> so, so you can imagine what it's, it's been really an adjustment, but I would say in a good way, because now we are learning a lot and we're adding in on a lot, and it's good for a movement like, like ours to have so many methods that we can use to again build our movement. So it's good that you know we are adding on. Even when the world opens up, I'm sure we'll be able to have a more bigger outreach because of the new and understanding of technology that we have at the moment. And, and will this new understanding perhaps impact funding asks and, and funding bids, you know, this kind of uh, encounter with 
um, a necessity to learn more technologies, to have them at hand? Do those already form part of, of what you seek when you're seeking funding? Or is this something that is potentially being built into future funding asks? Well, I think that it's built into future funding asks because even donors, some of the partners we work with, are looking into that aspect of saying that, well, it did work with uh, technology to have a more outreach and reaching many of our members, even those who live in the rural areas, then how can we improve on that and make sure that we even broaden it? So I think it's building into future prospects. Uh, Phil, here in the UK, lockdowns and work from home mandates disrupted our ways of living in generation defining ways. But there have certainly been upsides to this disruption. Can you speak to how UK Black Pride responded to your communities during the COVID-19 crisis and perhaps what a digital only approach enabled that perhaps wasn't as possible before? There have been some upsides. And of course, you know, this is not discounting how COVID has really disproportionately impacted, you know, our black and brown communities in the UK. But seeing that we had to find different innovative and creative ways of connecting with each other, what we realised is that the pandemic is not new to us because black people have always been living in a state of pandemic through the mass destruction of racism and so forth. So what we did is find ways to connect and find ways to bring home to a space that was online. And in 2020, our theme around home was making sure that those that felt that they were really so far away from connecting in the physical, we took the home to their laptops, to their sofas, to their beds, to their settees, wherever it may be. And we created uh, a way of seeing the talents that they would see on a main stage. The conversations through Busy Being Black or whether it's the Cocoa Butter Club or whether it's Spoken Word, all of that was there. We were talking about the important issues of trans and non-binary and safe spaces and youth engagement. But one of the most important things that I think UK Black Pride did in this space was understanding that if we are using an intersectional lens and we talk about having an inclusive pride, we made sure we reached out to our refugee and asylum seeking communities because we know that they cannot always often afford to be in these spaces, but we also recognize that they have to top up data. So through money that we raised around our Black Lives Matter campaigning, we made sure that we reinvested this back into our communities and the, the groups that work alongside our refugees and asylum seeking siblings, that they were able to top up their data so that they could enjoy and be part of, um, because it is by us and for us, UK Black Pride. And I think that we... Some people have forgotten about that connectivity um, when we're talking about prides. But the great thing about this is, Josh, you know, when you look at who has access and who joined UK Black Pride, we had, through our insights, over 30,000 people join 
our UK Black Pride. And then in 2021, we had just over 71,000 people join our weekend-long celebrations. Now, what does that tell you? Because an in-person event in 2019 was a little over 10,000 people in the one space. But if you've got 30,000 people, it means that so many others are able to be part of this. So going forward, like Frank, there's a lot of learning and growth within this and thinking about a hybrid approach to many of our events so that it feels truly inclusive because, you know, tech has changed the world, you know, and we've learned loads about how to unmute and how to also be present on social media um, and also other platforms. So I think that going forward for UK Black Pride, it is certainly going to be about how we utilise these platforms and learn from these conversations that we're having. Yeah, I think the accessibility point is exceedingly important right and something that many of us took for granted right that one that we thought we would always for those of us who who can move about without you know disruption always thought that we would be able to leave the house and go meet up with someone or go to a pride celebration and so there was a there was an acclamation that we all did but in that acclam acclamation we again, forgot about, erased those who are outside of our immediate surroundings, who are outside of our personal, um, you know, abilities, as it were. And there's a really striking parallel, I think, happening in Uganda and in the UK that reveals a real blind spot for how we assume technology is being used and to what end. Can I, can I add, Josh, that, you know, when we talk about accessibility, and you've already alluded to this about those who can move freely without major or, you know, disruption, um, there's something that we've always done is about language. And language is spoken in many different ways. And our interpreters for British Sign Language are ever present at UK Black Pride. But what this also meant for those who use a technology called a JAWS or Dragon, they were able to also hear through their computers what was actually taking place at UK Black Pride. Whereas we cannot necessarily provide that service um, and in, at an in-person event, of course, British Sign Language, but not the use of um, particular platforms like Dragon and Jaws. I, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm going to, you know, you're one of the most respected human rights defenders in the world. You're nominated for Nobel Peace Prize. How many social media platforms have reached out to you to consult about how technologies can be more accessible to the communities you work with? Well, at this point, none. It's surprising, um, but of course, um, Facebook often reaches out in terms of um, uh, looking at, um, especially when they are looking at their non-discriminatory policies and also the hate speech on social media. So, and that that has been ongoing for for some time now. But not the development of, or the improvement of technology for the communities. Rather, there are policies around. Yes. how to monitor the, the audiences. Very interesting. As we begin to emerge from the COVID-19 crisis, what lessons are you taking away and how do you think uh, your approach to your work has changed? Our approach as UK Black Pride 
has changed significantly just by way of, you know, and I don't want to repeat the, the areas that I went over about accessibility to reaching out and also connecting. One thing that we've learned at UK Black Pride following our survey, um, the largest survey of black and POC queer people in the UK is by identifying trends of how we do connect. And some of this will lead into making sure that organisations, grassroots organisations, are able to start forming their own strategies based on what we have heard, what we are saying, how we know that COVID has impacted us through work, through school, through university, through any number of institutions in which we actually touch the lives of or our lives are touched by. And then this community survey, which will form part of a community action fund, is that money then goes to our community groups because they would already have the strategies about what they need to do, because it's all good and well. And, you know, we've learned this lesson in understanding, you know, our global north, our global south comrades. We do not parachute in and tell people what they need to do. We are part of supporting their strategic vision of what they want to do. And if we can find the resources, the funding to look at that, community mobilisation, capacity building, movement building, then that's what UK Black Pride is setting out to do by creating a way of ensuring resources are up at the key and at the heart of this. So many of the things Frank spoke about, it means organisations feel well resourced to do this work and to also sustain themselves, whether they are using the latest technology or even being consulted on it. And I just wanna echo, you need to make sure whoever is on this line who has the ability to connect with amazing human rights defenders like Frank, this is not just about consulting on policies, but really hearing the lived experiences of how one navigates their lives through technology. Philip Hokajima is the co-founder and executive director of UK Black Pride and executive director of international LGBTQ human rights charity, Kaleidoscope Trust. Frank Magisha is a Nobel Peace Prize nominated human rights defender and the executive director of Sexual Minorities Uganda. Black Tech Fest takes place annually during Black History Month here in the UK and exists to inspire and create space for powerful conversations around technology, inclusion, and innovation. You'll find more information about Phil, Frank, and Black Tech Fest in the show notes. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer Black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The Tenth, Schools Out, and to you, the listeners. Your support of Busy Being Black means the world. Please do rate and review the show and tell others. The more you do, the more people like us get to hear the stories and voices amplified here. And finally, thank you to my friend and co-conspirator Lazarus Lynch, a musician and culinary extraordinaire based in New York City, for creating Busy Being Black's triumphant and ancestral theme music.
much happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com